Amen. I love that line, because he lives, I can face tomorrow. You know, tonight we'll be talking about the resurrection. The resurrection is that which validates the Christian faith. And so excited to be there with you guys. By the way, if you don't have this sheet, I would love for you to go ahead and raise your hand, and someone would love to give you one of these when you walked in. Pastor Clint, the birthday, I'm going to call it birthday boy, but birthday man, <laughs> strong man, the birthday strong, powerful man, would love to give you a worksheet. Okay. Well, let me give you an idea of what we're going to do tonight. Uh, I want to do three things. You know, I had the reputation of not going the full time. And so what I did was, let me create three almost mini lessons, three, three mini sermons, and kind of smash them together and see what happens. That's what we're going to do tonight. Uh, I'm going to do three things. So what I'm going to do first is do a brief exposition of John chapter 20. So looking at the the resurrection of Jesus, what do we see in John chapter 20? Then after that, I'll give you sort of a few theological contours for the resurrection. We'll talk about the resurrection historically. We'll talk about the resurrection apologetically, as in how how can we be sure it's true? And then also we'll talk about the resurrection theologically. What are some of the theological finer points of the resurrection? Then finally, we'll end with a a few devotional, significant aspects of the resurrection. You know, as as Christians, and more pointedly, as biblicists, we believe that the Bible is for us. And so we are to apply the Bible to our lives. And so my hope that this would not simply just be information, but it would be content that you can go and worship the Lord because of that. So let me go ahead and pray for us again, and we'll dive right into John chapter 20. Lord God, you've been good to us. You've been good to us in how you sent your Son to live the perfect life as in our place, as our substitute, to die on the cross, and then to rise victoriously from the dead. And so, Lord God, would, we, would you help us to worship the Lord Jesus Christ with everything that we are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, John chapter 20. By the way, that phrase we're going to be looking at is the phrase... On the third day, he arose again from the dead. On the third day, he arose again from the dead. So, John chapter 20, this is probably the central text for the resurrection. Let me set the scene for you. So, rewind three years. Jesus comes on the scene living a life of obscurity as a carpenter's son. He called a random group of young men to follow him and be his disciples. And they witnessed breathtaking things. I mean, they saw Jesus turn water into wine. They saw him heal a man's son. He told a lame man to get up and walk. He turned the laws of physics on its head regularly. He gave a blind man his sight back. He told a dead man to stop being dead. At one point, he puts the sea in time out. Remember that? Peace be still. So they witness breathtaking things, but then everything comes crashing down when he dies. And he doesn't just die, he's crucified. And in John chapter 20, that's in that confusion, that's where the disciples are. Jesus has been crucified. And they saw it. I mean, one of them betrayed him, Judas. They always wondered about Judas with the money and but certainly never thought he would do that. 
one of your own, denied him, Peter, who was seemingly the leader of the whole group of all, of all the disciples, Peter denies him. And the rest, the disciples, they ran away. In fact, you see that in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Now, on the first day of the week, guess who's here? Is it Peter? No. Thomas? No. Mary Magdalene. She came to the tomb early while it was still dark. You wonder, where's everybody else? They're gone. Peter went back fishing. Matthew went back to finance. Thomas goes back to doubting. <laughs> because when all hope is gone, you go back to doing the thing you were doing before. When you lose hope, you go right back to your former life. All of them go back to the former life. And so here they are, Mary Magdalene at the tomb, and she's not here hoping for anything other than just closure. She is at the tomb to bury Jesus along with her hopes. But what she doesn't realize is that a resurrection is looming. And what I want you to see, I want you to see how, rather, what happens when the resurrection takes root in your heart. Here's the first thing it does. The resurrection produces faith. It produces faith. Throughout all of Christian history, you can find men and women, after hearing the resurrection of Jesus, coming to faith in Christ. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 3. So the stone is rolled away, and Peter and John come to take a look. Verse 3. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Pause. I, I've always wondered about that. Like, why? I wonder if Peter, years later, was like, John, why do you got to put that in the, the Bible? Like, you were faster than me? What, what's that about? Anyway. anyway, I digress. Verse 6. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in. Get this. He saw and he believed. He saw the empty tomb and he had faith. He believed. Think about it. The resurrection produces faith. There are three elements here. An almighty God, a crucified Messiah, and an empty tomb. You add those three things together. You know what you have? A changed life. And anyone who is a Christian in this room can testify to the fact that those three elements, an almighty God, a crucified king, and an empty tomb, somehow, somehow I can't quite explain it, but that has changed everything for me. That's what it does. The resurrection produces faith. We're raised to walk in newness of life. This is why in the preaching of Acts, it centers on the resurrection. Acts 17, verse 30, it says, that when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again about this. But then others believed and joined him. The resurrection of Jesus is a central preaching in the book of Acts. This Jesus God raised up, and of this we are all witnesses. Paul can go before the king and say, these things have not happened in a corner. 
The resurrection, it produces faith. But also, it produces hope. Hope. Look at me in verse 11. But Mary, doesn't quite believe yet, stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. Then said to her, then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. So, so Mary is distraught. But, but look what the resurrection does. It's going to reprioritize our life. All the things that Mary was hoping for, all of a sudden gets reprioritized. And we're reminded that what I need more than a job is atonement. What I need more than a degree is forgiveness. What I need more than status is adoption. If you're single, what you need more than an earthly husband is a heavenly father. So what are you hoping in? Whatever that thing is, it has the ability to crush you. Because it can die. But look what happens when your greatest hope is in Jesus. Look at verse 14. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. He said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Then supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni. Do you see it? See the hope? See the source of hope is Jesus? Jesus himself is the source of hope? She sees him and everything changes? But you notice that the, there's a medium of hope. There is something that Jesus uses to give you hope. It's his word. He said one thing. Jesus spoke. Mary. This is why we discipline ourselves to read and memorize Scripture. Because God's Word is the medium through which we have hope. Like This is why we preach expositionally. Because the Word of God is expounded and explained to the people of God. It produces hope. So this is uh, Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former times was written for our instruction, so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. The source of hope is Jesus. The medium of hope is God's word. And the result of hope is joy. Think about it. John left it in Aramaic. He said, look, there, there is no way I can possibly translate the joy and the exuberance she had when she saw the risen Messiah. He keeps it in Aramaic, Rabboni. The resurrection produces joy. So you have hope. You also have peace. You see it there in verse 19. See the peace that the resurrection gives you if you're a believer in Christ. Verse 19 says this. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked, where the disciples were, far for, were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands, where he was, he was punctured, and his side, where the 
the soldier pierced him. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Now look at verse 26. 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with him. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Peace. You know, I thought about it. What sort of peace does the resurrection produce? And I can think of at least three ways. One is peace with God. Your sins have been forgiven. The resurrection is victorious. Your sins, you have peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 5, verse 1. But also peace with yourself. You know you're loved by God. You see the great lengths that God has endured to redeem you. You need to find your worth and merit from other people. You have peace with yourself. I was reading in 1 Corinthians 15 the other day, and Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. You have peace with yourself and who God has made you to be. So you have peace with God and peace with yourself, but also you have peace with your circumstances. Your circumstances, your most basic need has been met. He who did not spare his only son, but gave him up for us all, how and also with him graciously give us all things. Listen, if God is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, he can change whatever is going on in your life. You have peace with your circumstances. You believe in almighty God who raised the dead. Peace. Last one. The resurrection produces life. Life. I was here a few weeks ago. I made the point that John, one of the main main things he's trying to do in his Gospel of John is he wants you to believe. He gives you this thesis statement at the end of the book, verse 31, verse 30 rather. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may, here it is, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life. That's the whole point of the Gospel of John. I want you to believe in Jesus and receive life. Harkens back to verse 4 of chapter 1. Remember that? In him was life. The goal of the resurrection is for you to see it, to believe it, and to receive life. That's what he came to do. He came to give us life. You know what that means? Well, for starters, it means that this is the only life available. The only true life available is life in Christ. Everything outside of Jesus is a facade. Everything outside of Christ is a lie. Any other life that is offered to you will not give you life. It will give you death. This is the only life available. But also... This life is the longest life imaginable. You know, Jesus doesn't just give you quality of life. He gives you quantity of life too. Eternal life. That's why you have Psalm 1611. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures for how long? Forevermore. Listen, nothing is more full than fullness of joy. And nothing is longer than forevermore. 
So the resurrection, it produces faith, it produces hope, it produces peace, and it produces life. And as believers in Christ, we have the unique experience of this. We experience this faith. We experience this hope. We experience this peace, this security, this confidence, this joy. We have life. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we have life. So I want to pause there. That's the exposition of John 20. Okay? So if I were preaching this, I'd preach that, but a little, a little bit longer. What I want to do now is this. I want to give you some of the theological contours of the resurrection. How is it working historically? We'll do a brief survey historically of the resurrection. What does the church believe about the resurrection? Then I want to talk about apologetics a little bit. Because this is the most... I mean, this is the pinnacle of the Christian faith, the resurrection. Everything hangs on this. So how can we talk to our friends who don't believe in Christ about this? That's the apologetic part. Finally, I want to think about theologically, how, how does this fit with other important core doctrines? So let's look at historical service. I'll give you a few eras. First is the very earliest church era. We call it the patristic area. Now, these would be uh, the very first Christians, um, and so they would say this, that the resurrection is vital to salvation. The early church was wrestling with certain heresies. One was called docetism, from the Greek word doseo, which means I seem to be, or I appear to be. And what that heresy said is that Jesus wasn't actually a human. He only seemed to be a human. He only appeared to be a human. And so the early church, they wrote profusely against docetism and how they do it. They argued literal bodily resurrection from the dead. He actually was crucified. He actually was raised. So early on, the church has always believed in resurrection. Then you have the Middle Ages, men like Aquinas. He also affirmed the resurrection. He gave what we'd say five reasons for the resurrection. One is that God lifts up the humble. He opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God lifts up the humble. But then, secondly, it's important because it affirms the deity of Jesus. Right? No one else can die and then become undead. Only God can do that. Only God has power over death. Third, the believer's hope in resurrection. That one day, we will die. And our hope is that, just like Jesus, we too will rise. So the resurrection is really important for that reason. Number four, because the resurrection calls believers to holy living. This is Romans 6. We are raised to walk in newness of life. We walk in a new way. Fifth, it completes justification. Romans 5 Rather, Romans 4, Jesus was raised for our justification. He was delivered up for our transgressions, raised for our justification. You cannot be right with a holy God apart from Jesus dying in your place, and he can't just do that. He has to rise from the dead. So the Middle Ages affirmed the resurrection. Then the Reformers, they argued with the Catholic Church over many things. Guess what was not up for debate? the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. That never came up. Works righteousness came up. Paying money to priests came up. Other, right, other things came up. Authority of Scripture, that 
that came up, the literal bodily resurrection we all agreed on. Then you fast forward to modernity. Modernity, this is the Enlightenment. This is when people began to question the legitimacy of a physical resurrection because you have science and human reason. We no longer need the Bible. We have our brains. We've figured things out. And this is where the most helpful verse is Acts 26, verse 8, where Paul says, Listen, guys, why is it incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? It's incredible for them because empiricism, scientific method, rationalism, I'm smart, I can figure things out on my own, that's one the day. And there can be no human explanation for the resurrection. So you have modernity. Then you have post-modernity, where the, even, even the very idea of truth is questioned. What is truth? But along those lines, there is still this orthodox, conservative commitment to the literal bodily resurrection of Jesus. Let me give you a few things here. I want to talk apologetically. So you, we have this, this conservative, orthodox view of the literal resurrection of Jesus. How, how can we defend that? You know, Josh McDowell argues for the historicity of the resurrection, and he gives you five undeniable facts, five things that Christian, non-Christian, anyone who is studying history has to affirm. Five things. Here's the first one. Jesus of Nazareth was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Okay, that definitely happened. I give you a quote there by Josephus, Jewish historian, not a Christian, who affirms that Jesus actually lived in the first century. He was actually crucified under a guy named Pontius Pilate. That's an undeniable fact. Christian, non-Christian. Number two. Jesus of Nazareth was buried in a tomb owned by Joseph of Arimathea. I read this quote by Wilbur Smith. He says this, We know more about the burial of Jesus than we know of the burial of any single character in all of ancient history. You have uh, A.T. Robinson of Cambridge says that the burial of Jesus in the tomb of Arimathea is one of, quote, one of the earliest and best attested facts about Jesus. So he was definitely buried in a tomb. Number three. The tomb was found empty by his women followers. That's a well that's fact. Now why I say women? Well, because in the first century, it's actually quite inconvenient if you're saying a woman found the tomb, she's my eyewitness. This is a very much patriarchal society. It was very much that it was so much so that women were not allowed to give testimony in a court of law. And yet the Bible is replete with, yes, that the women were the first ones to see the tomb. If you're making a story up, why would you make that up? Why would you choose witnesses who can't even testify in a court of law? No, they didn't make it up because it actually happened that way. The tomb was found empty by his women followers. Number four. The disciples claimed to have various experiences of Jesus alive after his death. So after he was crucified, they claimed that they had experienced with him. Let me read to you 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3 through 8. Paul says this, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. 
that he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to an untimely born, he appeared also to me. So Paul names them. He's very specific. Cephas, James, the Twelve. Not only does Paul name people, but he says most of them are still alive. As if to say, go ask them. This book, 1 Corinthians, was written within a lifetime of Jesus' resurrection. And so, think of it this way. Let's just think of it democratically for a second. In, in a U.S. court of law, if you have 500 eyewitnesses prepared to take the stand, and they each have the same story about an event that occurred, without question, the resurrection of Jesus would be an open and shut case. It'd be easy. So we have, they claim to have various experiences of him alive after his death. Number five, last undeniable fact, Christianity spread like crazy starting in Jerusalem. In the very first Christian sermon, Luke writes this. This is Acts 2, verse 14, says this. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? He was crucified where? In Jerusalem. In the very city that Christianity began to spread. Now, if the tomb is not empty, you can't start a fake religion in that city. No, it, start, it started there because they saw the tombs empty. And so Jerusalem becomes a central sending place in the early church. And what was the main teaching of Peter? This is Acts 2, verse 32. This Jesus God raised up. The first sermon was about the resurrection. This Jesus God raised up. And Josh McDowell, he's a historian, says this, the church was founded on the resurrection. The Christian church was founded on the resurrection. And disproving it would have destroyed the whole Christian movement. You can footnote Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we're still in our sins. Even worse, we are found to be misrepresenting God. We're telling people God rose Christ. We didn't rise him. We didn't raise him from the dead. Okay, keep reading. However, instead of any such disproof throughout the first century, Christians were threatened, beaten, flogged, and killed because of their faith. It would have been much simpler to have silenced them by producing the body of Jesus. But this was never done. And so the overwhelming question in the first century is this. Where's the body? Where's the body? Which led scholars to four possible explanations. The first three are, are, are naturalistic, not Christian, but you've got to make sense of the facts. You have five undeniable facts. You've got to make some sort of hypothesis. So what's the first one? It's called the swoon theory. It's uh, basically, it says that he didn't actually die. Some people like to believe this. This is J.N.D. Anderson says this, quote, Christ was indeed nailed to the cross, 
He suffered terribly from shock, loss of blood and pain, and he swooned away. But he didn't actually die. Medical knowledge was not very great back then, and the apostles thought he was dead. He was taken down from the cross in a state of swoon by those who wrongly believed him to be dead and laid in the tomb. And the cool restfulness of the tomb so far revived him that he was eventually able to issue forth from the grave. The disciples insisted it was a resurrection from the dead. To which I want to say, why is it incredible to you that God raises the dead? So let's get this straight. Jesus was beaten for nearly 20 hours. He was whipped. He was flogged. A crown of thorns were placed on his head. Nails through his hands. A nail through his feet. He was stabbed in the side. He then was laid in a first century tomb for 36 hours without medical attention. And this theory suggests that he somehow revived himself, wiggled off the grave clothes, moved a huge stone out of the way by himself, snuck out, without the guard seeing him, appeared to his disciples, and then walked seven miles to a village named Emmaus after bleeding for three days straight with no food, no water, and no medical attention. So we can put that aside, can't we? He definitely was crucified. Second hypothesis. It's called the wrong tomb theory. The wrong tomb theory. People believe this. Cursop Lake writes this, quote, It is seriously a matter for doubt whether the woman, women who really really in a position to be quite certain that the tomb which they visited was that in which they had seen Joseph Arimathea bury the Lord's body. The neighborhood of Jerusalem is full of rock tombs. It would not be easy to distinguish one from another without careful notes. The possibility, therefore, that they came to the wrong tomb is one to be reckoned with. Let me just quote each of the synoptic Gospels. Matthew 27, 61. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Mark 15, 47. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Luke 23, 55. And the women who had come with him from Galilee followed after, and they observed the tomb and how his body was laid. The women knew exactly where he was. Plus, it was Joseph's tomb. Ask Joseph. (laughs) That's the wrong tomb theory. I'll give you the last theory. I struggled to name this one. Um, Not the best name, but we'll go with it. The dirty disciple theory. Okay? Bad disciples. Disciples were lying. So it has two, two different possibilities. One, that they made the whole thing up. Or two, they stole the body. My question is simply this. Who dies for what they know is a lie? Disciples, most of them died. Violent deaths for their faith. You might say, but people die for what they believe in all the time. Doesn't make it right. True but it does prove that they believed it. Why would they die for what they know is a lie? So renowned atheist philosopher Christopher Hitchens, when faced with that that question, because he believes this theory. They made the whole thing up, they stole the body. 
Someone asked him, why would they die for a lie? He shrugged his shoulders and he said, maybe they were bored. Listen, there is no good explanation for the resurrection other than number four, the resurrection theory, God rose Jesus from the dead. It makes sense of all the facts. It doesn't fall any pitfalls. It is the best theory of the resurrection. Okay, so talk about apologetics. I want to switch gears now and think about theology. What are the core theological doctrines that we believe as Christians that are affected by the resurrection? Here's the first one. Justification by faith. This is central to our faith. That we are justified on the merits of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone, not by works. Romans 4 verse 20 says this, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, here it is, and raised for our justification. The resurrection, it seals the fact that God accepts us on the merits of Jesus Christ alone. The spoken word artist, uh, spoken word is like poetry, with a little bit of rhythm to it. Uh, his name is Propaganda. So this way, he says this. Jesus wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered because the check cleared. How about that? I'll say it again, that was good. Jesus wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection we all cheered because the check cleared. The resurrection is God saying, I accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So, justification by faith. Second one, it's the, the um, we call it recapitulation. Okay, what this means is this. It's central to understanding how the Bible works. How Jesus is the, we call him the, the hermeneutical center of the Bible. Everything is revolving around Jesus. All the Old Testament characters, they, they somehow, some way, are pointing to Jesus. So it says, Jesus is undoing and redoing all that Adam and company has done. And he's doing it by doing it better. I'll give you an example. So look at, with, at 15, Adam. Verse 21, for as by... A man came death. That's Adam. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So he's inviting us to compare and contrast Adam with Jesus. And what he's saying is this. Adam was given life. Jesus gave his life. Adam gave us death. Jesus gives us life. Jesus reversed Adam's sin. So the, the order typically is life, then death. Jesus does life, then death, but he says death, then life. He's reversing, he's recapitulating, he is changing and redoing what Adam has done. Think a little bit further. Adam failed his test in the garden. Jesus passed his test in a much more difficult garden. Adam 
lost paradise. Jesus secures our paradise. Remember what happened when Adam sinned? He hid himself. Jesus allowed himself to be crucified. He gave himself up. At the very end of that account in the third chapter of Genesis, we see that God clothes Adam. Adam was clothed by the skin of an animal. And yet in Jesus, we are clothed with his righteousness. You have this Adam in Jesus, we call it typology. That Adam is a type, a, a, a small type of, of Christ, but in a bad way. Jesus is redoing what Adam has done. But also, you can go further. David, think about David, Acts 2, verse 29. Peter says this, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us today. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of this we are all witnesses. So, the resurrection is a theological link between 2 Samuel 7 and John 20. Meaning, in 2 Samuel 7, David is promised a king who's going to live forever. The only problem with that is this. Kings don't live forever. He says, look, he'll be on your throne forever, forevermore. He'll be to me a son. I'll be to him a father. And throughout the whole Old Testament, how can this be? How can there be a king who comes from the line of David who's going to live forever? Answer, resurrection. Jesus is the resurrected king who is the son of David. So now, because of the resurrection, we can understand the Bible. One last one. Remember Jonah? Remember Jonah? Jesus links his resurrection to Jonah. I think to point out that just as the fish vomited Jonah out after three days. By the way, I remember in, in seminary, I thought about how the word is vomit in English in the Jonah. I looked it up in Hebrew. Guess what it is? Vomit. <laughs> it's, the same, it's the same word. Right? It's a violent word, but, but he, here's why. The same way that God made this fish sick when he swallowed Jonah. Jesus made death sick. And death vomited, resurrected him back to dry land. And so Jesus makes sense of Jonah. And so the resurrection, it it touches all sorts of different Christian theology and hermeneutics. I'll give you one one last one. This one is called um, inaugurated eschatology. What that means is is simply this. The the coming age is invading the present age. The resurrection is God kicking off the coming age. You see this in Colossians 1.18. It says that, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning. Get this. The firstborn from the dead. I mean, there's going to be more. The firstborn from the dead. So that in everything he might be preeminent. The resurrection kicks off the beginning of the end. He doesn't say, we are in the already, but not yet. The age to come has invaded this present evil age in a powerful way, and it dawned at the resurrection. It signals a a breaking in of the new age to come. So that's theology. 
want to do is I want, I want to end with two devotional thoughts. Got a lot of content. I want to think about what, what, is, what does it mean for us as Christians to believe in the resurrection? I'll give you two things. The first one is this. The resurrection changes the way you view yourself. It, it ought to. It changed the way you view yourself. Romans 6, verse 1 says this. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Let me pause. Here's a question. I just read Romans 5. I just read where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So I should keep on sinning, right? Because I'll be forgiven every single time. Paul asked that question. Verse 2. By no means. Greek, God forbid. How can we, get this, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Let me just pause. That means your old life is gone. Dead, buried, crucified. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified in Christ. My old life is gone. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Passed and death in order that just as Christ, get this, was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. This is in verse 11. It says, therefore you must, not an option, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. The resurrection changed the way you view yourself. You say, I'm new. One third theologians say this, even Paul had to daily fight Saul. Every day. Every day, Paul is putting Saul to death. He's putting his former life to death every single day. Paul says in 15, 15, says, I die every day. The resurrection signals that there has been power associated with your conversion. I was talking about my barber yesterday. He's not a Christian yet. And um, I told him, the resurrection proves that Christianity is not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Something powerful happens when you get converted. You're new. Saul becomes Paul. You're a new creation. And so there's power at work with us who believe. So also Ephesians 1 verse 19 says this. He says, I want you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. This survey of the New Testament, whenever you see the resurrection, you often see the word power somewhere in the neighborhood. Because what they're trying to tell you is this, that the resurrection gives you power. A changed life. So it changes the way you view yourself. Last one. The resurrection changes the way you view death. It changes the way you view death. I love thinking about Lazarus. Remember Lazarus, raised from the dead? I wonder what kind of confidence he lived the rest of his life in. Someone threatens him, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Been there, right? But the same is true for us. We now have confidence in life and death. Did you know that as as believers in Christ, we actually get to mock death. Do you know that? We get to mock death. This is Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, 
where is your sting? You see, throughout time, death always won. And now, because Jesus rose from the dead, death is reeling. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Listen, the only way that we can mock death is if death has been publicly defeated. The only way we can taunt sin's tyranny is if sin has been overcome and overthrown. And the resurrection says just that. Sin and death have been overcome in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Let me end again with verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. The third day he rose again from the dead. Praise God for that. Would you pray with me? And so, Lord, we're, we're grateful that our hope is not in this life only, that our hope is in a resurrected king who ever lives to intercede for us. And so, God, I pray that as we leave here tonight, our hearts would worship our king. Our hearts and our minds would be focused on the king of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who has conquered death and defeated our sin at the cross and his resurrection. God, we love you. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.